Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Presenting is something we all need to do at some stage of our lives, perhaps for our own wedding speech or making a board presentation, hosting a webinar or doing an investor pitch. As a former TV reporter turned professional presenter and communications coach, this is in my wheelhouse. But for so many people, it becomes something they have to master and sometimes they find it hard to manage that all-important preparation and delivery. While I have my own presentation style, I'm always keen to find out how others present and how they manage their style of presentation, whether that be in person or online. Enter communications specialist Monica Lunen, and she's the founder and co-director of consultancy Mojo Logic, where she works with the best to make meaningful change for their clients. She's also the author of a new book, What She Said, which explores 40 inspiring speeches from women throughout history, delving into how and why they were so impactful in creating positive change and how we can apply these lessons to the workplace. Her fascination with communication can be traced back to school and university, where she was an avid debater and public speaker. Her academic pursuits in political science and international relations gave way to a career in business and the power of persuasion has always permeated her view of the world. Monica wants to live in a world where ideas flow, leaders are brave and salespeople don't make you cringe. As a sought-after consultant, facilitator and speaker, she has worked with companies like AMP, Macquarie, EY, Qantas and Suncorp to motivate and empower behavioural change. When she's not attached to a lapel mic, you can find her swimming at Manly Beach in Sydney, skiing down a mountain, clearly not in Sydney, cramming for a book club or negotiating with teenagers, something I also can relate to. So welcome to the podcast, Monica. Thank you, Amber. Really glad to be here. I'm excited to share that my only podcasting platform of choice since I launched The Politics of Everything in 2017 has become my first sponsor. Check out the podcaster discount link in our show notes and stay tuned to find out more soon. So tell us about maybe your first paid job and whether that sort of was a springboard to anything for you career-wise way back when. I don't know if it was a springboard to anything career-wise, but it was certainly, you know, a a real foundation piece in, in how I look at the world. So back when I was in high school, I got a summer job working in housing commission. Okay, interesting. In Toronto, where I'm from, in Canada, big city, lots of different housing commission complexes scattered throughout the city. And I I did that for six years. So six summers, I would go and and, um, work in housing commission. And uh, some of the the complexes had swimming pools. And I was a lifeguard and a swimming instructor and got to work with a small team and got to really get to know the residents of these housing commissions. So what that did for me was sort of blast out of my consciousness, if there was any lingering belief that you know, people are born with with certain talents and abilities, then then those evaporated quite quickly. People are just people. 
So the circumstances that that led families to live within housing commission, I mean, you saw some interesting sides to humanity, but also just just wonderful humans. And, uh, you know, the bad behavior that you you see in those environments, you could equally see in a country club environment, which was another job I had down the track. So all the extremes of society coming together, I guess, exactly. in some ways from socioeconomic mm-hmm. point of view, but I guess there's commonality in, in some experiences as well. Yes. So how did you decide what speech has made the grade in your new book, what she said? I mean, did you have a core criteria or was it just things that you had loved or other people had recommended was what was the process like of curating that because I can imagine there would be more than 40 that you could have picked yeah oh yeah there were hundreds that that I looked at and examined and the process started out a little bit scattergun and then I kind of dropped into what what you could reverse engineer and say there was a process there once I worked out that what I wanted to do was organize the book in terms of themes of persuasion. So there's 10 different chapters to the book, which are 10 different themes from, you know, how you inspire and motivate, how you change hearts and minds, how you provide guidance, advice and wisdom. So as these started to emerge, then I went looking and went to categorize the speeches I already knew about. I did ask lots of people, what impactful speeches have you seen or heard by women? But most of the research was was conducted by me. There were some women that I knew had made a mark on history, you know, like Dorothy Parker, I would put her in that category. But I wasn't aware of, of any one particular speech that she had made, just lots of probably have all heard of. So, so I went looking for the speeches from some women that I thought I wanted to include in the book. And then I think on a, on a speech by speech basis, as I was evaluating the speech, any speech, whether it's by a woman or a man, I think the you know the first thing is does it make an impression? So there's kind of that stand back and and just let it let it in, listen. Does it impact you in some way? And then I look closer. So what's common for all of the 40 speeches in the book is that they all had a sense of purpose. So even if that purpose wasn't overtly stated, you can always tell what a powerful speaker, at least the ones that have made a mark on history, what they were trying to achieve. Right. That's a really nice process, though, I imagine, too. You must have enjoyed it in some way because obviously you're drawn to communication and these speeches perhaps had an impact on you and others around you. So it must have been quite an enjoyable process, even though I imagine at times it was hard to to select. Oh, no, I loved it. I I mean, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But I just loved it. I could could do it every day, (laughs) listen to speeches, watch speeches. The writing, the producing of the book was the hard part, you know, getting into the swing of of, of writing and developing that as a skill. That was kind of new for me because it's not just an anthology. There's, there's a lot of analysis in this book. There's lessons from each of the speeches. And I wanted that to be written in a way that was approachable for everybody that wasn't kind of dense, academically written mm. and wasn't sort of obtuse business writing, if you know what Absolutely. I mean. Absolutely. The sweet um, spot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the process of discovering the speeches, that was that was just pure joy for me. So impact is a key feature of being a presenter and we often talk about that when we're preparing, say, clients with what I do or when I'm actually thinking about speaking. Speeches demand a sense of performance as well and poise to create that impact. What would be your top advice for anyone wanting to master a speech from that initial idea, that seed of an idea, to the actual writing, to the delivery? How do you create that impact? 
Mm-hmm. So I think the reason why people come on presentation skills training courses rather than just get the information out of a book or from a general source is that it becomes quite personal because actually the process is is different for everybody depending on you know how you think your attitude towards public speaking. So I know you say, Amber, that this this is a skill that's in your wheelhouse, but for many, it's it's terrifying. And for most people in between <laughs> the two, it's something that is often resisted. So I'm about to give some general advice with that giant caveat that, you know, the way that you should approach it should be tailored to, you know, your attitude towards public speaking and how you already know that you come across. So raise your self-awareness. Given all of that, A great place to start is to determine what's possible in the time that you have available. So wouldn't it be great if we could all take a month to prepare a meaningful speech and and ponder, think about what the difference is that we want to make, what the delta is, go away and think about some creative ideas, craft, rehearse, (laughs) re-rehearse, prepare and stand up and deliver as though it was off the cuff. I mean, that's the gold standard. But the reality is, especially in our working worlds, is that that is not usually possible. We're often called upon, you know, sometimes with a week, maybe a day, maybe 24 hours, or in the worst case scenario, perhaps 10 minutes or less (laughs) to stand up and... and, Excellent. um, (laughs) Yeah. And you know that, you know how I said sometimes people classify public speaking as one of their biggest fears. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And often I find in my work that that tracks back to some incident. Oh, like <laughs> standing happened. up in the and forgetting like your speech in the school debating kind of exactly. club or exactly. Yeah. Or or your boss throws you in the deep end in in what they think is, you know, a low risk environment, but you just character building. <laughs> Did you say that happened to you? No, I'm just thinking and they think it's character building. You know, sometimes <laughs> people just go, Well, if you want to be, you know, get good at your job, here you go. And, and don't give you the tools, don't give you that. I think a lot of it's mental. That's my yeah. experience anyway. It's being in the mindset, it's feeling calm, it's being in your body, all those kind of things which feel to some people a bit woo-woo, but I think it's so important. I mean, you literally can't be running from a meeting and checking your phone for emails and then get on stage and expect to deliver an amazing performance. You can you cannot. That's exactly right. And you know it doesn't take long. It's not like you need to clear an hour to do some deep zen meditation. It's it's not that at all. But you do need to get yourself in the mindset before you take the stage that you know you project yourself into the future. Imagine you've delivered the best speech of your life. Take a few deep breaths. Center yourself. I often give the advice, even if you have very limited time and you're not into rehearsing your speech, just rehearse your opening so that at least you can sort of launch yourself into the right start. And then a speech that starts well typically ends well, as long as you've done some preparation or have some sort of structure. So getting yourself into that that mode is critical, not just for the big podium speeches, but I would say even when you're going to chair a meeting or participate in in a discussion, any kind of discussion forum, you should remove any potential distractions from your way. So you're right. You shouldn't be checking your phone, thinking about your last meeting, because that's on your mind. And, and I think that's actually doing your audience a disservice. You're there to provide them with something. So if you're going to take up let's say 10, 20 minutes of somebody's time or even an hour, some long form presentations take quite some time. If you're going to take up people's time, you need to be absolutely clear on what you want them to do with the information you're giving them. 
What do you want people to think, feel, or do? And if you're not clear way back when you were planning your presentation, then there's a lot more work to do. You know, so often in business, people come out of presentations, you know, when they're in the audience and they think, I'm not sure why I was listening to that. I don't know. What was in it for me? Yeah. What was in it for me? So I think that in those instances, the, the presenter has failed in their communication responsibilities. Yeah, absolutely. So what are your preferred presentation tools when you get ready to present? And do you have any special way that you get yourself ready that you'd like to share with us? And I'm only thinking of that because I remember years ago seeing Barack Obama, the former US president, actually raps before he used to give the State of Union address. That just got him in the zone and got, got his vocal cords ready. And I guess it relaxed his body. So are there any things that you do? That's so interesting. I hadn't heard that. But when you think about Barack Obama's speech style, it's very rhythmic. Absolutely. So perhaps the rapping kind of got him got him started in the right direction. Look, I I do try and take my own medicine, so I rarely have time to rehearse a speech end to end. I mean, for the big ones, for the keynotes, I absolutely do that and and I try to get it to the point where I can deliver it so that it sounds unrehearsed. As I said, that's the gold standard. But in many instances, especially in in longer form, you know, facilitation environments, I do rehearse my opening. So I know what the first couple of minutes are going to be. And then that allows me to settle in to the room. Because I'm not thinking about what to say, I can connect with the people. You know, we, we talk to eyes and ears. I can look out at the audience. It's, it's much better now that we're back in the face-to-face environment. Again, this part is, can be quite tricky when you're communicating virtually. But because I, I remove the element of surprise, you know, sometimes you hear speakers that you think, oh, this seems like a surprise to you, especially when they hit next on their PowerPoint deck and they're looking at the screen just like everybody else is. Looking blankly. And then they comment yeah. and say, oh, I didn't know that was oh, there. I, I mean, that's going to undermine any confidence we have in him as a speaker, or, surely. Or even worse, they put up some detailed slide that's done in eight-point font, recognize <laughs> that nobody can see it, and so say, I know you can't see this, but, and, you know, everything in me, just don't heckle the speaker, don't heckle the speaker, don't say, well, then why are you showing it? So, you know, the, you mentioned tools and what tools are useful. Now, there's no doubt that PowerPoint or slide tools of any sort are helpful. It can be really, really useful to have visual support to enhance your presentation, but they should not be your presentation. Absolutely. I always I always say to people when I do my coaching, and then you should see the look on their faces, you know, imagine that the tech didn't work. And then they all get sort of, oh, but I'd always have the backup laptop and a USB. And I'm like, no, 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 just picture mm. that none of that's possible. Could you give your talk? And if your talk is reliant on the PowerPoint solely, then you're not actually presenting. You're giving me something you probably could have emailed around as a PDF. Yeah. And we can all read. So I'd rather get the hour back in my day sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. So, you know, if there's one thing that, that people should stop doing, it's stop opening PowerPoint as your first step when you're planning to deliver a presentation or a speech. Just stop it. It tends to sort of, I think the way that our very talented Marcoms people these days create slide deck templates is for documentation, not for visual support. Absolutely. So, you know, they're they're kind of more and more. In fact, I think it's gotten even more this way in the last five years or so. We're sort of driven towards creating boxes of text and, and, you know, smaller and smaller fonts because we've come to this place where PowerPoint is used as a documentation tool rather than 
you know, some sort of word processing tool. And that's absolutely wrong. So, so just stand back, resist the urge to open PowerPoint. Instead, think, what do I want people to take away from this? What would be a powerful opening? How can I grab their attention straight away in using a technique that's relevant to them, relevant to the context within which I'm speaking, and most importantly, relevant to the topic that I'm presenting on? None of that needs to involve PowerPoint. And you're right, if people could disconnect from their tech, I think it would be a lot more impactful and a lot more believable because it's sort of a crutch. And people tend to use their PowerPoint slides as their script for their presentation. And then it becomes really confusing, right? Because the audience is seeing masses of information on a slide. Yeah, where do I look? Do I look at the person speaking or am I staring at the screen for an hour? Exactly. And inevitably, the person speaking is using different words than what appear on the slide. So now I'm just confused. And so the whole experience is suboptimal. And I walk away going, so no wonder we walk away going, I'm not sure what what was in it for me from that presentation. It's a it's a big problem. It's a prevalent problem, but it's so easily fixed. So do you think that people, and it might be gendered, it may not be, really present differently depending on a culture or perhaps, I guess, personality could come into it as well? Or is, and is that something we should all embrace as our kind of USP, our own unique selling proposition for ourselves, rather than trying to change ourselves to be more like somebody else as a presenter? And I know the word authentic gets bandied around way too much, but I always try to say to people, you know, you can try to emulate and channel somebody else that you admire, but at the end of the day, you're still you. We, we can't be Barack Obama or we can't be, you know, a Brené Brown because that's not us, although we can take away some of their style in terms of delivery, storytelling and methodology. But certainly I think some people struggle with that idea. They, they want to sort of just transform themselves into someone completely different when they're on stage. Yeah, that's true. And then that's quite jarring, especially in a leadership context, right? So if you're, if you're the boss, if you're um, a senior leader within an organization, and I know you from, you know, yesterday's meeting and last week's town hall, and you know, my interview five years ago, I have a sense of who you are. And you, we call it the imaginary line at the front of the room, you cross that imaginary line and go into speakers mode, and you present as somebody quite different, that affects trust. Human beings want coherence. They want to know that the person you were yesterday is the person that you are today, and therefore I can believe and trust what you're saying. So there's that. When you're speaking to an audience that that already knows you, you need to be yourself up there. The other thing is, though, we are all perfectly ready and willing to see a version of you, so long as it's believably you, transformed slightly for the stage. So what what we help people do is appreciate where they're coming from, their natural style, their ability to connect with people, the way that they're already perceived, and amplify that for their public speaking face, if you like, their public speaking image. So it's still you, but it's you presented a little bit differently with awareness of how you're being received. So you know, there's so many great examples of powerful speakers and speeches out there. Most of us are familiar with them. Most of them are men, though. So, and, you know, I, I was the same. If you asked me to list the speeches that, that I found most impactful, I would, I would talk about Barack Obama, Martin Luther King, JFK, perhaps Winston Churchill. You know, these are the speakers that come to mind. And you don't have to look far to find powerful speeches by women, but they're just not not as we don't reach for them as quickly. They're not as 
prevalent in our society and in the literature on public speaking. So that's, and not as referenced, I yeah, think. Yeah, and so if you, you know can't I mean? see the example, then how can you be it? That's one thing. The other is I yeah. tried to represent a really diverse range of women in this book, and I would say the same if I were to write another book featuring speeches by men or, or a mixed audience. We've, we've got to hear from the introverts. We've got to see what technical people look like when they're delivering technical information. It's certainly useful to see the politicians that are comfortable with that, you know, the visionary type stuff. I want to see differences in terms of ideology, not not just one political persuasion represented. And whilst that might annoy some people, I think it's really critical because we could quite easily fall into this trap of thinking, oh, well, public speaking or communication, it's really only for those sort of people. And that's not right. Extroverts, for example. Exactly. Yeah. Audiences matter so much when we present. And one of the things I always get my clients to think about is before you put pen to paper, before you even think of an idea, who are you really talking to? And obviously we need to prepare speeches or messages or even board presentations or meeting notes that we can allow us to win that audience over no matter who they are. I tend to create quadrants that allow mm-hmm. my audience, I guess, to sort of to think about my audience in a quadrant and then think about how I might mirror them. So if you're action orientated, what do I need to say with action words or do to actually demonstrate that? Process orientated people, traditionally that might be your accountants and, and finance people. I'm, I'm being very stereotypical, I know, or tech people. People mm-hmm. orientated, so your extroverts or your natural public speakers, your leaders, your teachers, your you know leadership teams and CEOs, and ID orientated people, so they might be more your academics and, and researchers as well. Do you have a way in which you kind of think about audiences that might be different to that? Yeah, almost exactly the same, Amber. I'm <laughs> so and I promise, audience, we didn't collaborate. Before we did this. not collaborate. <laughs> so I, I use, I tend to default to the Herman Brain Dominance Instrument, which gives you a view of different thinking preferences. Again, in four quadrants of more left brain versus right brain, or more cerebral, I think, versus limbic, I feel. It's very, very similar. It allows you to divide who might be in your audience into four different thinking preferences. So there's a million and one models out there. There's social styles, there's disc, there's somebody told me about one recently that has birds that represent each of the quadrants. They all do something slightly different. And and obviously we have our preferences, but what they all have in common, and this is really critical in, in building presentations that appeal to a wider range of people, what they all have in common is they remind us that not everybody thinks like you. So if you're going to be impactful or effective as a communicator, you need to remember that the way you like to receive information might be quite different from the way somebody else likes to receive information. Now, if we were in a one, and it's all about influence. So if we were in a one-to-one environment, let's say you were a prospective client and I was trying to win some business, then I would be able to situationally adjust, use the ideas and examples and mannerisms that I think would be most impactful for you based on which quadrant you're in, right? Yes. But when you're talking about a presentation, which is one to many, you need to adjust your communication so that it appeals to the widest range of people. So have you got something in your presentation that appeals to those action-oriented people? Usually in business, that means put your ask up front. We've talked about the what's in it for me. That has to be clear. You know, we write executive summaries for these sorts of people. Have you provided it, especially in a long form presentation, have you provided an agenda? Is there something you can do 
to put the process-oriented people at ease so that they know what's coming next. Have you thought about the next steps? Is there a plan? Have you looked at the details? So that's, you need to make sure you don't say things like, oh, don't worry about this, we'll sort that out later, because you will alienate those process-oriented people who will say, yeah, right, well, I'm not listening to anything you're saying from this point on. So, and then for the people-oriented people, you need to be present, you need to be in the room. If there's groups in your audience and you know they'll be personally impacted by whatever change it is that you're speaking to, you should mention them. And it's okay to use people's actual names or the names of teams if you're in a corporate environment to bring them into the presentation in some way. And then for those idea-oriented people, the kind of big picture thinkers, make sure you've connected your presentation, your idea to to some sort of why frame. Why does it all matter? Is there a future or a vision that you're imagining that your your idea fits within? So it is possible to cover your bases, if you like, to make sure that you include something for the four different thinking styles. And it's not about putting people in boxes. It's mainly about reminding us as presenters and as communicators that we need to often appeal to people who are quite different from ourselves. Absolutely. So here's a big question. The greatest presenter you ever saw. So it can't be someone that you've just watched a speech online with. You have to have actually been in the room, if you like. And why did they rock so much? Wow. I'm not entirely sure I can answer that. (laughs) Do you know who? Can I I diffuse it by saying one of the greatest? Yeah, because I could come up with a list of 10 because this is, (laughs) you know, this is what I do. (laughs) Watch speeches. But I'm going to go back in time to a philosophy professor I had at university back in in second year. So that I'm pretty old. So that's a long, long time ago. And I still remember what he did and what he said. So he was delivering some pretty heavy content. He was, you know, long way into his career at the time. And and you're probably aware that a lot of academics, they just pick down from the shelf what they did last year and the year before and the year before and go through it almost by rote often. But this guy didn't pick up a piece of paper and he was delivering in, in this case, it was a lecture on existentialist philosophy. And he started with a question and he walked, you know, through the auditorium or the lecture theater that we were in. He engaged with people. He asked real questions. When he spoke, he spoke from a place of authority for sure, but also authenticity. I could feel his passion for this subject, which previous to this lecture, I knew nothing about. And the reason why that particular lecture, and it is, you know, it's part partially a speech, I suppose, was so impactful is that not only did I learn something that day, which was the whole point of the lecture, but that has stayed with me all these years and not just stayed with me, sparked an interest in finding out more. And it's, you know, it's something I'm still interested in. That's great. That's amazing. I love when those people stick with you for all that time. And you've probably seen loads and loads of speakers since then. So, Yeah, I wish more business presentations jumped out on my, <laughs> list, my list. Death by PowerPoint, as they say. No, we don't recommend that at all, any, anyone listening. Um, so changing tack a little bit, who have been your greatest mentors? Is there one or two that stand out and why have they had such an impact in your life and career? Uh, probably several from from different parts of life. So not just professional environment mentors. I'd say, you know, in terms of the way I think and remind myself to think differently than maybe my natural mode, I have to say my dad is one of the biggest influences in my life. I grew up in a household where you couldn't just make a a proposition or a claim at the dinner table without the appropriate amount of evidence to back it up. (laughs) 
Absolutely. Well, that helps, I guess, get you ready. That's, that's just how it was. So, you know, I studied <laughs> liberal arts, but he was a chemical engineer. Yeah, right. Uh, and and a very a highly critical thinker. And it just reminded me always to ensure that I didn't get swept away on an idea that was interesting, but always to bring it back to analysis and and really, I think, helped me from a very young age introduce some rigor to the way that I think and communicate. So that would be one. I had a boss once when I first early on in my financial services experience who said to me, I think on my first day in this job, he said, I don't know what, what you're going to do to you know, I had a particular challenge in front of me to set up this business unit and make it work. But that's what you're here for. I'm here to support you and get rid of any barriers. Off you go. Don't break the law. And, you know, <laughs> this milieu of, of people that were guilty of maybe not micromanaging, but occasionally micromanaging, it was just so refreshing to have, you know, the default position for this particular person was trust. So I've hired you, I've made the call, off you go. And I found that incredibly liberating and inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. If we spoke again in a year, what would be the number one thing you would have hoped to have changed or improved in your business and career and why? That's a good question. I hope that this book is <laughs> number one bestseller. I've had two guests in a row say that who've had books, so I guess that that's probably the, the the thing hanging right in front of you right now. Oh, it's my husband is so fed up with me because every day I kind of live and die by. Am I the number one Amazon bestseller today? <laughs> so I was yesterday, and today I'm not in my subcategory. Maybe I will oh, be dear. tomorrow. You're still fabulous. Don't worry, Monica. My ego, my ego is tied to that, and I never thought I'd be that that person. <laughs> but it's How like funny. you know, creating something and then dumping it, it on the, the universe and you hope people pick it up and like it and you you know you do what you can to promote it and uh and then you know you just sit there with your fingers crossed waiting for judgment <laughs> so, so I, I really do I really do hope that the the women and the speeches that are featured in this book and the lessons that have been extracted make a difference for some people who feel that public speaking or even just presentation is not for them because that is that is not true. It's never true. There's only a tiny percentage of the population that have a phobia. Most of us just have resistance. So when people say, I'm no good at this, that's that's a self-limiting belief that you know we can smash in an afternoon. So I, I really hope that I get to work with more people to change that mindset, enable people to take their ideas out into the world because we need more of them. We need more diverse voices. We need better quality debate, not just in politics, in business as well. We need people putting their case forward and listening to other people. Final takeaway message for us on the politics of presentation styles. You have to find your own style. I think that's that's really at the heart of, of all of this. Find your communication style, your presentation style, so that you yourself, everybody who's listening, can feel comfortable in expressing their ideas and in creating change, no matter how small that change might be. That's great advice. And I think there's so much we can all learn, no matter how great a presenter we all think we are. So if you do want to connect further with Monica, there are some details on the show notes. Until next time, everyone, please take care. Thanks, Monica. Thank you, Amber. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. 
I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea, you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.